0: Hello, I'm Terry Schultz, and I am channeling Brussels, getting newsmakers, movers, and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble, and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This episode of Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. Thanks for joining me and my guest this week, Maritza Shake. Marietje is a member of the European Parliament from the Netherlands, who's one of the most outspoken lawmakers on a whole host of issues. She's known for her strong views supporting human rights, Internet freedom, cybersecurity. But she's also the vice chair of the delegation for relations with the United States. And this is a role she's focusing on intensively these days, with what she considers a shocking decline in transatlantic ties, beyond what she could ever have imagined. So in the days before I interviewed her, which was during the European Parliament's week in Strasbourg, we learned that the EU's ambassador to Washington had been dropped to the bottom of the diplomatic protocol list without any obvious reason or notification. We also heard that President Trump's frequent threats to pull the U.S. out of NATO were more than just bluster. He genuinely wants to do it. So who even knows where the low point will be anymore? We also talk about upcoming European Parliament elections in which she has decided not to do it not to run, and how to engage the youth vote, an issue of universal interest. As always, she's got ideas. Here's Mariache. Mariache, you and I over the years have had many discussions about transatlantic relations, but did you ever think that that we'd be in the situation we are now, where every day brings a new concern or a new fear or a new realization that um, something else is going wrong? No, actually, under the Trump administration,
1: the rift in the transatlantic relation is so much worse and the change is so much steeper than I could have ever imagined. So I would have never expected, and I'm very, very worried about where the transatlantic relation is going under the Trump administration.
0: So we'll talk about several things, but um, the latest of which is this story by my former colleague here in Brussels, Julian Barnes and Helene Cooper, um, laying out intricate detail how President Trump actually does want to pull out of NATO. How much does that concern you?
1: Well, it confirms what we've heard in in different iterations and which was then corrected. And, um, you know, it, it confirms where... Oh, we thought it was corrected.
0: You mean pasted over. Exactly. Now we know.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, initially it was like, no, 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 don't be so worried. Uh, we're committed to a Europe whole and free as we've always been. Europeans have to pay more. But, you know, our commitment is is not changed. But it seems like Trump, in fact, has considered pulling out of every international agreement or organization. I mean, there are ongoing speculations that he in fact would like the WTO to fail or for the US to actually pull out of the WTO. So the fact that he has actually, you know, toyed with the idea of stepping out of NATO, I think has been on our radars, was then taped over by reaffirming that the US would be committed to Europe's security and that it was a shared obligation. Uh, and now we know where the true thinking of the president is, and and
0: of course it adds to our worries. And one of the things that I found most striking, having having followed um, also NATO's attempts to make it seem like nothing is wrong, um, was the comment in this story that um, that Trump apparently was surprised when um, NATO sec- NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg said what he always says in this case yes, yes, we hear these things, but look at what happens on the ground. Um, they've increased their spending. They've increased their troop numbers in Europe. There's no backing away. And apparently President Trump was surprised by this because he hadn't realized that he had increased the budget, all these things that Europe has been um, you know, repeating as reassurances. So that one segment in this story was really, really interesting to me because apparently, um, yeah, either he didn't know um, that this was happening, um, and and now you don't. Or he he perhaps didn't know this was happening, and now we worry that he'll go back and try to you know scrape that away too. So uh, that that was this week's story, and last week's story was broken by Deutsche Welle that the EU ambassador David O'Sullivan had quietly, as in without notification, dropped to the very last place um, on the protocol list, which means at. President Bush's funeral, which is where I understand they figured out this had happened, he was called dead last of all ambassadors. And that certainly was something that got your attention.
1: Yes, it did, because again, it's one of the many confrontations that we've seen coming out of this administration. We had Secretary Pompeo's very, very aggressive speech in Brussels. Uh, we've heard the president. you know. Um, uh, cozying up to the nationalist populist forces in Europe that are really opposed and often attacking the sitting governments of many countries from Italy to Poland to Hungary to the Brexiteers in the UK. So um, uh, it is an ongoing uh, challenge. We've heard uh, Ambassador Sondland, the new U.S. ambassador to the EU, making very harsh statements about the EU being bureaucratic, about Europeans needing to take or leave a deal on trade, or otherwise it would prove once again that Europeans are not open for business. Um, We've seen the withdrawal from the uh, Iran nuclear agreement from UNESCO, um, very confrontational tones and, and... uh, unjustified tariffs uh, with with the argument of national security over over European steel and aluminum, so it is really becoming such a long list that I think anyone who still thinks that these that these events can be brushed over that they can be you know sort of um, 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 gold-plated in some way by the buffer of history or by others than the administration carrying the transatlantic relation. I think they need a wake-up call. It is very bad and we need to have contingency plans in place. Europe needs to be strategically much more reliant on itself and that means that leaders of the national governments need to jump into much more action and ambition than what we've seen from them so far.
0: But what does that mean in practice? Because we talk about that a lot. Europe needs to do more. And then on on my specialty, defense and security, of course, you have PESCO. You have these kind of projects. But but when you say European leaders need to do more, what would you like to see people do? And in fact, your own prime minister, Rutte, within the last couple of days has um, has, has said some things that um, are a bit ambiguous about President Trump being right about a lot of these things, and that Europeans shouldn't always be critical of, of those opinions.
1: Well, unfortunately, Prime Minister Rutte says many more ambivalent things. Um, he said in the past week that he would like to punch people in the face uh, if they are misbehaving, which is a very inappropriate statement laugh. <laughs> to make. It is a terrible statement to make, and then he has also said that the European Parliament's elections, which the whole world will be watching for where Europe is going, are actually not that interesting to him, that they're not that important, and that people should watch the national level. So uh, I don't think we can take Prime Minister Rutte as the yardstick of what uh, appropriate comments are. But indeed, he he um, he tried to sort of lean towards President Trump, and I think look, we have to we have to assess. Expressions by the Trump administration on their merit. It doesn't mean that everything they say is unjust. In fact, the whole you know NATO spending of 2% has been uh, an issue that the Obama administration brought up repeatedly and that many in Europe acknowledge is actually an issue. Um, but what Europeans have to do much more of is that, aside from NATO, they have to work on better defense cooperation. PESCO, as you mentioned, is very important, but there's more that needs to happen. And certainly when it comes to foreign and security policy, we still have the crippling vetoes that member state governments can invoke when they don't agree with a next step in foreign affairs or, for example, sanctions. Uh, I don't know how many people realize that a veto of one member state can stop the extension to um, Uh, of russian sanctions for example uh, after the illegal annexation of crimea uh, it takes unanimity for so many core foreign and security decisions that we actually are not as much a player and a strategic actor on the global stage today as i believe we should be Um, i was in india last week speaking at a conference there and it is remarkable how absent europe is from a number of considerations there's a lot of talk about you know china u.s relations tensions over trade over uh, its role in the world or the respective roles in the world uh, power play this and that and and europe is increasingly not even mentioned when it comes to global players and i believe that we should never allow that to happen and i also think that that is not in the interest of the united states because liberal democracies have to Increase their cooperation. That also includes India, Japan, Australia, many other countries, Canada, of course, because liberal democracy is under pressure everywhere in the world, and we cannot afford fragmentation between us.
0: Okay, but here's a, that's an interesting thread because you say that um, that perhaps the un, the unanimity um, requirement weakens Europe in some cases, but. Um, and we do see these statements at every council watered down so that you can get everybody on board until they basically say nothing. But but um, if you did have different member states taking different positions, um, wouldn't that also be a weakening? I mean, the EU likes to come out and say we got unanimity, regardless of what that lowest common denominator has become. Well, yeah. I mean, so member if states you, cling if you lost to it, unanimity. Be- then,
1: yeah. Well. There is more and more talk about qualified majority voting for a number of foreign policy decisions and I'm in favor of that because member states have to also really not only look at the dynamics between them, but look at the global dynamics and how rapidly they're changing and how we really have to adjust to a new global reality with, you know, rising nations in Asia. Uh, great global ambitions, such as the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, building up of military capacity in China, but also a question of, of how we can engage countries like India, Japan, more effectively in building a rules-based order in a changing world. I think that that is the real challenge. And Europeans risk being too inward-focused, You know, thinking about who's a bigger or, or uh, minor uh, net payer to the European Union, Uh, talking about whether European elections are important or not. I mean, really, they need to stop navel-gazing and looking at the massive changes that are happening and the relative decline that we are facing as a result of our demographic change. We're an aging continent. Uh, We have major issues with migration and asylum still to solve, uh, to to reinvigorate liberal democracy within our societies uh, and addressing the legitimate problems people have while... Uh, fighting back against populists that simply want to blow up the system uh, and offer no solutions for the people they claim to represent. There is a long list of things we, we need to do, but we cannot just look inward. We have to look at the world uh, around us, the strategic consequences that it has, and also allow that to inform our next steps. I think that that is crucial,
0: and I don't see enough of it, unfortunately. You, um, when when I first met you ten years ago now, um, you had just come into Parliament um, to the European Parliament, um, having as a as as one of the high tech kids. I mean, you were you um, had campaigned um, on social media um, by mobile platforms, and you were really um, one of the most advanced, um, at least as I saw it. Not being very advanced myself, um, and you were bringing sort of a young vote. But I don't see young people in the European Union excited about about policies here. If anything, they are more vulnerable than ever to these populist tendencies, aren't they? What can we do? No, I think
1: it's a mixed picture. One, I think we need to do a lot to bring out young voters. Look at the lessons learned from the Brexit referendum, where young people largely stayed home and were then very disappointed to see what decisions the older generation had made about their lives, essentially. Uh, young people voted for remain in much higher numbers than uh, older people did, but actually they didn't turn out in in similar numbers as old people did. So we need to reverse that trend because um, young people don't allow their parents to choose what they're gonna wear or what they're gonna look at on their <laughs> cell phone. So why on earth would they allow others to decide for them what the future through the political system looks like? So I, I really believe that this challenge of bringing in young people remains a uh, top priority. But I also see developments you know, like Volt, this very pro-European movement that is manifesting itself all over Europe by young people who think that even very pro-European parties like my own uh, do not go far enough. They wanna start a real movement. Uh, we've seen the young people of marche in France making a real difference. Young people uh, vying for, for seats in the European Parliament also going forward. I've been slightly amused at the at the attention that um, Alexandra Cortez, she has been all over the media as the youngest ever elected member of uh, the U.S. House of Representatives, and and it's great that she's that she is you know changing uh, the picture that has been very white, uh, male, and and over fifty. In, in US politics you know, with, with a number of other women that has come into the House. But the point is that in the European Parliament, there have been many more younger representatives already. I was first elected at the age of 30 and I was definitely not the youngest person or the, or the youngest woman. Now, I'm not saying it's enough, but I also think we have to look what is going well. Uh, in Europe, we have a social welfare system that uh, needs innovations, but that by and large, deals with a lot of problems that the US hasn't even began to tackle. We have healthcare programs that are affordable for people with good quality care. We have affordable education for people so that where you're born doesn't determine whether you can get access to high education and, and good quality education. You know, We have good infrastructure, including public transportation, an ambitious vision for dealing with climate change. I think Europe shouldn't sell itself short, but it also means that we have built so much that we could lose, you know. And I think that that is making people wary. And I understand that concern a lot of citizens have, that they, that they worry that the children that they are raising now will, will not be better off than people have been themselves. Um, but I do think that there's a lot in Europe that we can be proud of and we shouldn't talk ourselves down either.
0: But how? I mean, I agree, uh, having lived here and, and seen um, the kind of benefits that EU citizenship brings. But, but I don't see a lot of people around me um, quite as quite as appreciative of that. And I, do. You have any practical ideas about how to get out to get out that youth vote? I mean, the, the Commission has spent a lot of money on making fancy videos um, in years past, but I don't see that they've um, increased the, the youth involvement rate. I don't know if they have, but it doesn't. No, seem usually to be, um, the
1: cool anything. video is not as cool for, for the recipient as it is for the messenger. Right. Um, <laughs> w- when the institutions think that they have like tackled the next thing, a lot of young people have like already moved on much, much further. So I do think that using social media in a clever way works. And I think it is not really the institutions that appeal to people because they uh-huh. are. Uh, much more abstract, uh, far away uh, blocks of, of of real estate where people work, I think it is more the candidates and the idea that people have a choice to vote for someone that represents their ideas best, and that then these representatives will have to work together to push a certain agenda conservative if that 's where you 're leaning, progressive if that 's what you believe in, um, you know focusing on the digital agenda, if you believe that that is essential for uh, innovation and the future of jobs, or focusing on security if you are worried uh, about your own security and the and the future of this continent, so I think the choice that people have should be magnified, not so much the EU as such uh, it is really a moment to shape politics and um, to prioritize what you yourself believe is essential, and I think that's a conversation that has to be had with people for much longer than only political campaigns. I mean, I myself have, for example, organized town halls, discussing a whole whole number of topics. And there were always many young people who were happy to ask questions and also happy to engage in a conversation without it having to be a debate, you know, a, a virtual boxing ring, but really also to ask questions and to learn about how things work in practice. I think one of the problems that we, we face is that... Um, Politicians don't often uh, take, take people seriously enough in the sense that you can actually have very detailed conversations if you only try. Uh, and a simple video, I don't think, is, is all that people need. I think a lot of people are happy to actually learn more about how things go behind the scenes, where their influence is, and making it concrete by talking about topics and how the European layer impacts the outcome. Not alone, uh, oftentimes in combination with nat- national policies and even local policies, but it, it empowers people. Uh, let me give you an example of for example the the platform economy. you know companies like airbnb and uh, and Uber are really companies that a lot of people have have interacted with, and they have an opinion about. Some love it because it provides for cheaper opportunities, some hate it because it provides for Uh, crowded cities and and tourists running over uh, the center, putting out their trash on the wrong days or pushing out taxi drivers from the market. And they have strong opinions about it. Um, And part of the solution will lie in European policies for the digital single market, but certainly also part will lie on the local level. Because uh, what is a burden for a city of Amsterdam is a blessing for small towns that can now attract tourists... Uh, in ways that they could never do before maybe because they didn't have hotels or maybe because tourists didn't really know how to find these niche places so um, Europe doesn't always provide for sort of you know whole um, uh, blanket solutions for the entire EU but it's very often operating in combination with what's happening on the national and local level and um, I hope that people will feel empowered by knowing how they can make a difference, because that is what we need. We
0: need citizens to understand where their agency lies in a democracy. That's then on the candidates' backs. Totally. And if they're, if they're not doing it, they're, they're losing. They're losing these young people. And do you see that this is happening?
1: I mean, you can basically say it never happens often enough. So I see a mixed bag. I see some people really finding creative new ways to engage with young people. Um, I see a lot of hard work by many, many volunteers going into political parties. That's something that should not be underestimated. Political parties run on on armies of volunteers that are going out in the cold uh, to talk to people on markets, um, in libraries, at stations of public transport, in schools and universities, at business associations, uh, really everywhere that they can to listen and understand what is going on. I think the political center, whether it's Christian Democrats, social Democrats, liberals, uh, that's the political family I belong to, but also Greens to some extent, if they uh, wish to gravitate towards the center, have understood that uh, these are critical moments for sort of the core supporters of open societies and, and a liberal world order, and that they have to double down to engage people. And I believe, that again, these elections will be determined by who can be brought out to vote, uh, and certainly nationalists, populists, people who want to break down the system that we cherish and want to innovate and improve, are also trying to bring out new voters and um, have, to some extent, provided an outlet for people who didn't feel represented. So uh, I think it you know it shows that it can be done to attract first-time voters or to bring people out, but it requires work and it requires meeting people where they are, uh, at the ideas that they find relevant, uh, to present them with the choices that they can make and the solutions that we can build together. But there also has to be a space for compromise. I think one of the problems in today's debate is that so many issues are presented in black and white form, you know, winners and losers, um, good and bad people. Whereas really the picture of democracy in practice is much more nuanced. And you have to be able to work with your adversaries Uh, negotiate hard but accept a compromise at the end that can be supported by a majority. So you never have a sort of winner takes all in Europe. There's fragmentation everywhere, there's cooperation in coalitions everywhere and there will be in Europe, whether it's cooperation between the nationalists who always pretend to have uh, the best solutions by themselves but who are really working well uh, together effectively on the European level. Uh, And there has to be better cooperation in the political center too.
0: Um, and do you think that that populism is a bigger threat now, as we as we look towards the European elections and several national elections this year as well? Do you think this really is um, a a bigger threat now, or are we just talking about it more?
1: Um,
0: I think it is certainly a
1: challenge. On the other hand, there have been representatives of nationalist populist parties here on the European level for a long time. Think about the UK Independence Party that had 24 members coming in last time. I mean, they will not be here anymore after, after Brexit. Um, we have had uh, relatively large contingencies of the Dutch far-left nationalists here represented for two terms now. Um, the same goes for, for others, like Front National from France, for example, or um, Italian Polish party. So it is not like this is the beginning of representation of the far-right and populists on the European level whatsoever. It is not like this is the start of a representation of nationalists and populists. It is also not a beginning of cooperation between them. It will also not be the first time that they're going to use European subsidies Uh, very, very um, ambitiously while they are spitting on the European Union in the words that they use about the future. So um, it is also time to look a little bit deeper, and I think sometimes media present it really as if this is going to be the first wave of nationalists coming in, nothing could be further from the truth.
0: (laughs) Yes, I mean, we've watched Nigel Farage sit with you there in the the European Parliament for, for so many years now, decrying the institution that pays him a fine salary just to name one example exactly yeah. <laughs> that's true yeah mm-hmm. um i i want to bring it around again now to um to, to the us and and also to you because you've got um some some personal news you you won't be running uh, again mm-hmm. for a seat in the yeah. european parliament and I don't know if you're ready to talk um, yet about what you, what you want to do next. But in in the same breath, I'd like to know what, in particularly in your role on on the committee for relations with the U.S., what you see ahead as you continue in this seat through the May through the May elections. I know you're going to be doing some teaching at Stanford.
1: Yeah, that's actually coming sooner. Uh, so I remain very committed to not only the transatlantic relation but also the open internet and uh, peace in in cyberspace, if you want to call it that, because the whole uh, geopolitical stakes and confrontations between companies, countries uh, at the expense of of people and the open internet itself is a very, very high stakes um, struggle that I think deserves more attention. Uh, I remain committed to the public cause and the rule of law online. uh, f- towards democracy promotion. So there's a lot of core topics that I've worked on with great pleasure as a member of the European Parliament that I believe will uh, guide me in the next step that I'll take. I'm not sure yet where that will be, but until I actually leave the European Parliament at the end of June, uh, I'm going to work as hard as I've always done, uh, including as Vice President of the US delegation. Uh, we are hoping to make it to the US one more time uh, in that capacity this year uh, as well, because when we were in Washington last, our program was understandably uh, a little bit uh, changed because of the ceremonies for President Bush uh, as, as he was um, buried and honored um, and you know, was recognized for his leadership also in the transatlantic relation, but it, it did change our program. And so we're hoping to have an opportunity to have some of these meetings again with new members of Congress uh, to also strengthen the parliament to parliament's transatlantic relation and to understand where checks and balances to the administration that is hurting the transatlantic
0: relation so much might come from. That's another interesting point because Congress has actually been even more vocal about transatlanticism and, and pointing out that it does have checks and balances on some of these decisions that uh, President Trump uh, likes to suggest he could unilaterally take. Um, are you perhaps feeling, I mean, more... Um, kinship with our elected, with the American elected um, representatives than than you would if there wasn't such um, a hostile administration in the White House?
1: Well, it depends, right? I mean, there's uh, many representatives and there's also those that I vehemently disagree with. Think about the Tea Party or uh, the people that that are supporting President Trump and building a wall with Mexico or who are uh, really cozying up to to the Kremlin, for example. So, with every parliament, it's a it's a mixed set of representatives. We see uh, people here as as far apart as the UK Independence Party and and myself, a pro-European progressive politician. And the same goes for US Congress. So it's a matter about um, finding each other. Uh, in a, in a broad coalition of like-minded people that are understanding how fast the world is changing, how much pressure there is on the quality of life of our citizens and on liberal democracy, and who are willing to work hard together to find solutions and who are not just screaming and pointing to the problems because that, in fact, is not the hard part of politics, identifying the problem. What is much harder is identifying the solutions and getting there with broad support and, and tangible, um, sustainable solutions. So. Uh, politics is not easy and and simplifying it is something that populists love to do but it's actually uh, tricking tricking people into believing that things are simple well actually it's quite complicated in practice and i do believe that people understand that they're not stupid so let's tell them how it is and engage them along the way and uh, hopefully thereby uh, bringing out many many people to vote in these important elections for us at least
0: in, in the european election Many thanks to Dutch Member of the European Parliament Maritje Schaake for making time during her busy schedule in Strasbourg week to join me for this Channeling Brussels. I, for one, am going to be very interested in whatever she decides to do next. Thanks to the Atlantic Council for sponsoring Channeling Brussels and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Terry Schultz. Join me next time.